Raised by wolves with canine DNA in his blood, having trained more than 24,000 pets, helping you and your fur babies thrive. Live in studio, it's Pet Talk Today with Will Bangura, answering your pet behavior and training questions. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host and favorite pet behavior expert, Will Bangura. Good Saturday morning, pet lovers. Hey, welcome to Pet Talk today. We're so glad that you're here. Do us a favor. If you're watching, hit that like button. Show us some love. Do us also a favor. Comment in the comment section what kind of pets you have and where you are listening from. We've got a fantastic show today. If you're brand new to Pet Talk today, we're here each and every Saturday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific time. That's 12 noon to 1 p.m. Eastern time. And we interview people in the pet profession industry. Uh, We do shows on behavior and training. Uh, We take your questions. We answer your uh, emails and your comments. Today, we are so very, very fortunate to have a very special uh, guest with us today. Um, This has been two years in the making. And uh, in just a second, I'm going to bring on Dr. Karen Becker, who is a veterinarian, author, pet industry influencer. She's known for her common sense approach to creating health for companion animals and has been embraced by millions of pet lovers around the world, making her the most, this is amazing, making her the most followed veterinarian on social media with over 2.5 million followers. Among her own film accolades is the dog cancer series, Pet Fooled, which she co-produced. It's a six-hour documentary which investigates cancer as a metabolic disease and includes interviews with veterinary oncologists, researchers, and scientists evaluating nutritional interventions as a tool for managing some of the most aggressive canine cancers. With 20 plus years as a practicing clinician, she has spent her career equipping and empowering animal guardians to make intentional lifestyle decisions to enhance the health span and of their animal. And her first co-written cookbook provided nutritionally complete recipes for homemade pet meals, and that sold over 100,000 copies. But in addition to that, um, she's got a new book that uh, came out in 2021, and it is called The Forever Dog. And believe it or not, it was number one New York Times bestseller list book. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome a rock star in the pet world, Dr. Karen Becker. (laughs) Dr. Becker, we are so glad that you're here today. Welcome to Pet Talk Today. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well, Will, and I can't think of a better way to spend an hour than chatting with (laughs) people that are fired up about taking the best care of their animals. So it's a joy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, when I say you're a rock star, I mean that because, you know, we promote our shows and we have with our events, we understand we can see how many people are interested, how many people are going. And you 
have had the most traction. We've got more listeners today. We've got more viewers today than uh, than we ever have. And the great thing about oh. it is is that this uh, li- Facebook live video will keep getting seen over and over and over. We're recording this for the Pet Talk Today podcast, which is heard in over 78 countries around the world. Yep. Um, so we are so excited. Um, you know, a lot of the people that are watching today know of you, but there's a lot of people probably that don't know about you. So why don't you start by just kind of telling us who you are and what you do? Well, you bet. I am Karen Becker, and I am a proactive wellness veterinarian. That means that my goal is to kind of empower pet parents, animal guardians, owners, whatever, however you identify yourself as as an animal lover. My job is to partner with you to make knowledgeable decisions to intentionally you know, to extend the lifespan, which includes health span. We want our animals super healthy and well-being to really be able to make common sense choices to make our animals feel better longer. So I am a, a, a veterinarian by trade, and I knew at a very young age that I wanted to be a vet, that I wanted to care for animals. But I also grew up in a super proactive home, and I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that not everyone grows up with parents that say, hey, we need to move our bodies every day, and we need to spend time outside, and we need to you know, when I got to my teenage years, we need to help manage stress. And, you know, there's things you need to do to make sure your body doesn't break over time. I just thought all that was normal until I got, you know, I realized in my late teens that I had a very special and very supportive and very proactive family. But because that's the foundation of who I was, I grew up in Iowa. Both of my parents are teachers. And they really focused on the fact that if you know more, you can do better. And I still believe that that's so true. So when I became a veterinarian, it was very clear to me that the way I can best minimize heartbreak for for owners is to help them make better choices before their animals get sick. And that is exactly what I have done. I set up a proactive animal hospital in Chicago. Then I set up a proactive exotic animal hospital because I treat a lot of endangered species and exotics. And then I set up a rehabilitation and physical therapy center because the physical aspects of keeping pets mechanically moving well can't be underestimated. So my goal is to do everything I can to help bring information so that pet owners are helping to prevent their pets from breaking on the front side instead of treating disease down the road. What's, what are some of the things that um, you focus on in, in terms of being able to help pet parents with that? So, and actually, that when I wrote the Forever Dog book, I wrote Forever Dog during COVID, which was a perfect time. Writing a book was on my bucket list. Uh-huh. But I, I didn't, it's hard for me. I am a go, go, go girl. And I have a lot going on all the time because I figure I'm going to live to be 100 and I want to have my body and brain be with me for that time. But I have booked enough things I want to do to be 200, but I have to get it done by 100. So I have a lot on my agenda. So during COVID, when the whole world stopped, I'm like, you know what, this is a perfect time. I'm going to not waste this these two years. I'm going to write a book. So that's what I did. But it was really good because I had to succinctly kind of frame out what are my points of intentionally creating health and wellness. And so I came up with a DOGS strategy. So D is the diet and nutrition part, which of course plays into how how we nourish our animals plays into their health span and their lifespan. Op- the O is optimal movement, which means animals need to move their bodies regularly. There is no pill for exercise. There's no pill for muscle tone. There's no pill to prevent, you know, to make ligaments and tendons strong and resilient. We have to create those opportunities 
for our animals to move their bodies to have a strong, resilient frame and musculoskeletal system. And then the, uh, the G is for genetic predispositions. We know that there are some breeds that are significantly more damaged than others when it comes to genetic flaws or mutations. But just because our animals could be carrying some DNA that isn't so desirable, it doesn't mean that our animals are going to be victims of their DNA. And that's a really empowering point that pet parents need to know about, that just because maybe our German Shepherd mix has the DNA for hip dysplasia to be expressed, it doesn't mean he's, he or she's going to express hip dysplasia. So there are things we can do to help down-regulate genetic expression. And then the S is for stress. And when I talk about stress, I'm not talking about just emotional, mental stress, being in a crate for eight hours a day. I'm talking about indoor chemical stress, which epidemiologists, researchers, toxicologists tell us that our homes are some of the most toxic places for animals to hang out. I'm talking about outdoor chemical stress. That means the lawn pesticides, fertilizers, things we're putting on our yards that our dogs and cats are rolling around in. And I'm also talking about veterinary stress, chemical stress, meaning Myself and my colleagues, we sometimes recommend treatments that have side effects, like we tell you to intentionally put pesticides on your animals every month for flea and tick control. And although flea and tick control is totally necessary, sometimes there are side effects. So I put together this DOGS strategy to kind of lump all together all of the things that pet owners need to be thinking about concurrently to intentionally minimize risk of disease occurring and maximize the opportunities to prevent disease from occurring. What what are some of the things that they can do? What are the most important things that they can do to bring about this optimal health for their pets uh, to bring about greater longevity? Well, when we think about so when we when we track the the forever dog dog. So what I mean by that is the idea for the forever dog book was I'm pretty obsessed with the longevity science, and the cool thing about technology and research is that especially in the human space. Our top longevity researchers for humans are beginning to use dogs as their test subjects. And I love this because they're using dogs to emulate as little sentinels, as little reflections of humans. And because dogs and humans co-evolve and because dogs are, of course, man's best friend and because the vast majority of people in North America and around the world that are listening to this podcast, we love dogs. But because we kind of hold dogs captive in our homes and they are reflective and or victims to our lifestyle, if we are healthy humans that are focused on intentionally reducing disease, we tend to extend those same variables to everyone in our home. We tend to think about our kids, nourishing our kids well. You know, we're not going to go to the fast food dollar menu every day, all day for our kids. We realize as human parents that our kids need a variety of different nutrients. You know, our pediatricians, our doctors, our nutritionists are telling us to minimize the amount of processed foods we're putting in our bodies, try to get our kids to eat more fresh living foods, try and diversify our diet. You know, don't just rely on ultra processed foods. Well, it's interesting because veterinarians are the last remaining group of health and wellness professionals that actually give the exact opposite advice. The vast majority of veterinarians, my colleagues, will say only feed your dogs or cats ultra processed foods from the time that they're born to the time that they die. And for a lot of people, when they stop to think about that, they're like, oh my gosh, it doesn't make any sense. And why is that? So I also ask, 
why is that? Why, why would we say that feeding one food from birth till death is a good idea? We know every longevity, wellness, gut biome scientist in the world says that is a bad idea. So when I started asking these questions, this is 20 years ago that I was like, hey, I think I'm not sure. I feel like we have a disease paradigm set up for dogs and cats. I feel like we don't have a wellness paradigm set up. So I've been knocking around these questions for a long time. So my obsession is what can we do to get dogs and cats to live the healthiest, longest life possible by making good choices on the front end. My co-writer, uh, Rodney Habib, is obsessed with just plain old dogs. He is a dog dad. He is not a veterinarian. And he's just obsessed with tracking down the oldest dog in the world and finding out what their parents did and didn't do. Like sometimes people just like have outlier dogs. They don't feed good food. They, you know, they're chained to a tree in the backyard. And these dogs can live to be 14, 15, 16. So did they, was it good luck? Was it good genetics? Probably. But Rodney was obsessed with determining these really unbelievably long-lived dogs that far supersede any other average lifespan of dogs around the world, could their owners have been doing something or several things that may have resulted in these dogs living exceptionally long lives? So that was his question. My question was, is there any science to back up that information? So we decided to blend these two ideas and, and thoughts together. Rodney interviewed the owners of the oldest dog in the world. And then I went to the top research lab studying longevity, uh, as well as really, um, I went to geneticists, I went to epidemiologists, I tracked down the top scientists, we went to Salk Institute, we interviewed Nobel Prize winners, we went to David Sinclair at Harvard Longevity Lab, we talked to everyone. And we presented this information from these exceptionally long-lived dogs, what they did and didn't do, and then we asked these top researchers to reverse engineer it. And what they gave us in terms of science, I, t I wrote a 700-page book with over 500 references. And HarperCollins, my publisher, said, no, 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 no. You will chop out half this book. You can have a 400-page book, uh, and you have to put all the references online because it's literally 100 extra pages of paper. So we ended up with a book that kind of summarizes all of the things that pet parents, pet owners, dog owners can be doing to minimize the chances of genetic or epigenetic diseases being expressed and giving your animals the fullest, most abundant, thriving life. So when we think about when it comes to the D or the diet, you know, the top microbiologists, including Tim Spector from King College, he's one of the most cited microbiologists in the world. He was the one that said to us, I can't think of anything more destructive to a dog's microbiome than just feeding the same food every day. So my first tip would be, Will, Think about how much you can diversify your dog's diet. And what we mean by that is the pet food industry has done a little bit of damage over the last 50 years in saying, never change your dog's food. And we know that that's a marketing gimmick, that it's a bad idea to feed one food forever. You get the same set of nutrients. You get no amino acid diversification. You don't really do anything to build your dog's microbiome. So we know that that's bad advice. But people listening to this are going to say, okay, cool, that makes total sense. But how do I diversify my dog's diet? Well, it's really simple and it doesn't need to be stressful. And above all, it's really important that you improve your dog or cat's lifestyle incrementally at a pace that resonates with you, that makes sense with you, that your budget can afford, and that you are able to do the research and the background information so you feel confident knowing that you can open your refrigerator and <gasps> offer your dog 
the little dented blueberries at the bottom of that container, don't throw them out. Like, feed them to your dog. In fact, Dr. David Sinclair, this top Harvard geneticist and longevity expert, said to me, do you know, Karen, all those dented raspberries and blueberries, all the fruits in the fridge and the veggies in the fridge that have a little brown spot? He said, I cut those out and I feed those to my dogs because I know that when a fruit or vegetable undergoes stress and there's a dink or a dent or a cut, that the plant sends more polyphenols and more antioxidants to fix that wound. So he said, I intentionally buy produce that isn't perfect. And then I feed those imperfect parts to my dogs because he said, I want my dogs to get those food-based antioxidants and polyphenols and, you know, the, those, all those super green food nutrients. I want to pass those up the food chain. So you can start diversifying your dog's gut health by just sharing fresh foods from the fridge. So let's remind all your listeners that there's a few foods we don't feed to dog or cats. We don't feed onions or leeks. So don't feed onions from your fridge. It's a bad idea. It can cause anemia, hemolytic anemia. We don't feed grapes and raisins to our dogs because uh, there's a bunch of potential theories. But tartaric acid is the, is the front and center theory on why some dogs go into kidney failure when they eat grapes or raisins. So don't do that. And then, of course, chocolate. Don't feed chocolate. The other thing I'll mention to, to your listeners, and you probably have experienced this too well, if you go like on AKC website or ASPCA, there's this in, exceptionally long list of foods that say, don't feed these foods to your dog. And it really makes me sad. In fact, in the book, we call it food fear. And the internet is teeming with all of these food fear facts. Like your dogs could choke on raw unsalted almonds. Don't feed them. And it's true. So could your toddler. So my words of advice when it comes to common sense warning is you feed the same parts of fruits and veggies to your toddlers that you do to your dogs. You're going to chop up the apple. You're not going to feed an apple core to your kid. Don't feed it to your dog. You're not going to feed an avocado pit to your kid. Don't feed it to your dog. You're not going to feed a pineapple rind to your human kid. Don't feed it to your dog. So those common sense things aside, there's literally not much coming out of your fridge that you can't share with your dog. So my suggestion when it comes to diversifying nutrition, Will, is increase the amount of free e freebies, free, easy, fresh foods from the fridge. And that's not adding anything to your budget. Everyone trims the tops and bottoms off their carrots. You know, everyone trims the tops and bottoms off their green beans. You can share all those end pieces with your dog, and they make great training treats. Your dog's probably hanging out in the kitchen anyway. You could do a quick sit stay, and you can give them, you know, half of a bite of your strawberry. And that's a great way to diversify their gut biome. Now, I've got a question for you. When we are giving fruits and vegetables to our pets, can they break them down and digest them? Do we need to help them? I've heard different things. I've heard we need to juice and puree them. I heard that we need to perhaps give them um, digestive enzymes because they lack cellulose. Is there any truth to that? Can you speak yeah, to so, that? So great question. They, they do, dogs and cats both being scavenging carnivores, uh, obligate carnivores, they do like cellulose, but they do both produce a ton of amylase. So amylase is the pancreatic enzyme that, di that digests carbs. Dogs and cats don't produce cellulose like horses and cows, but that's actually to their benefit because that's where the magic of the prebiotic fibers that are found in fresh fruits and veggies 
those prebiotic fibers, because pets don't have cellulose, that's where the magic happens. In their colon, short-chain fatty acids, butyrate, and a whole bunch of amazing prebiotic bacterial parties happen in your pet's intestines. And that's actually what creates the prebiotic, the probiotic prebiotic fiber effect that creates the postbiotics that creates gut health. For listeners that are like, I have no idea what she just said, 70 to 80% of your dog's immune system lies in his or her GI tract. And we can either nourish that immune system through diversified, fresh, healthy foods, or we end up creating a whole lot of gut issues and out of gut issues, which create leaky gut and dysbiosis, gassy, belchy, farty pets, intermittent diarrhea, loose stools, all those GI symptoms that plague our pets today are a result of their gut being very unhealthy. And so fruits and veggies provide this prebiotic fiber, antioxidants, polyphenols, all of these amazing nutrients and beneficial bioactive compounds that actually nourish and restore the gut. But it's about particle size, Will. So what do I mean by that? If you're, if you, let's just say you decide, okay, today I'm going to give my dog a, a little slice of apple. If you see that apple come out in his poop, you need to chop the apple up smaller. For the vast majority of dogs, you're able to offer them, I don't know what you recommend when you're training. Well, I recommend pea-sized training treats, yes. like yeah. literally the, the tiniest. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So if you're feeding pea-sized bites of green banana, green banana has unbelievable amount of prebiotic fiber. It's amazing for IBD, IBS dogs. Wow. It's really good. So you can just chop up a green banana, and they, it's hold together. They're super starchy. It's really firm. You can take a slice of banana, quarter it again four times, and you have like tiny training treats that are amazing for IBS, IBD dogs. They actually go into a training pouch fine. They hold together. You're not going to see those come out in the poop. So to answer your question, of course, dogs and cats are not big chewers. They produce a ton of amylase to process carbohydrates. So you don't have to worry about, oh my gosh, you know, are they gonna, are they gonna be able to digest it? They can, we know through lots of research that they can digest plant matter just fine. So the key is you want to chop it up to be small enough that they are getting the benefit of being able to extract the, the nutrients from those fresh foods when you offer them. Okay. So. You know, there's so much controversy out there and there's so much different information when it comes to pet foods. It's all, it can be all very, very confusing. Um, you know, the latest thing that, you know, is confusing, I think, out there is, you know, the information that's come out and, and nobody, you know, there's different uh, thoughts on it. And that is, you know, Grain-free or not grain-free? Do we have a problem with grain-free diets contributing uh, to dilated uh, cardiomyopathy? Or is that somebody trying to uh, take something that has maybe very little influence and try to make it the big influencer and not talk about the things that are the big influencers for that? Can you talk a little bit about that? You bet. You bet. And it is. The world of pet food is incredible incredibly confusing. And you throw on top of that the illicit, just unethical marketing that AFCO and Fatty AFCO, so AFCO is the American Association of Feed Control Officials. They set the minimum nutritional requirements. It's a private organization. It's not FDA run. It's not run by, you know, any type of public food safety commission at all. It's a private organization 
it sets the minimum nutrient requirements for dogs and cats. Europe has also a similar standard. They have better standards, in my opinion, for for nutrient profiles, especially for growing large breed dogs. The European nutrient standards, I think, are far far more evolved. But the fact is, I am thankful that we have a, an organization that does set minimum nutrient requirements to prevent animals of, from dying of nutrient deficiencies. However, I think all of your listeners would agree that not dying is not the same as thriving. Those are two different, those are two different categories. Not dying means that your animal could certainly be plagued with recurrent medical issues that take you to the veterinarian six to eight times a year, chronic ear infections, chronic skin issues, chronic yeast, bad breath, loose stool, all those things that are the top reasons you end up taking your dog or cat to the veterinarian. Those are dietary-induced issues. So it's really difficult when you think about the entire pet food industry. There's all sorts of issues going on. Do we have quality control issues? Yes. Yes, we do in pet food. There is, sadly, you know, everything that is approved for human consumption gets a USDA food stamp of approval. Everything that's rejected for one reason or another, whether it's, you know, meat that has an abscess or a tumor in it, whether it's grains that have mycotoxins, which are fungal loads that are too high for human consumption, all the leftovers that fail human food infection go into pet food. So there's a big difference between pet feed and human food. So one is human grade, of course, and the other is pet feed. So we have to be clear, 99% of pet food is not approved, made from ingredients not approved for human consumption. So do we already right there, do we wonder, okay, if it's made from rejected, recycled feedstuffs from the human food industry that failed inspection, what's the quality of the raw materials? That should be a question three pet parents ask, number one. Number two, the question is, how biologically appropriate is the food that I'm feeding? And what we mean by biologically appropriate is this. Uh, before I was a veterinarian, I was a wildlife biologist. And one of the things you will learn if you are a wildlife biologist is that every species has a set of nutrient requirements that their metabolic machinery needs to function optimally, meaning you have to nourish a species to which nature intended it to be nourished. When it comes to so cows and horses are vegans, they eat plant material and they have to eat a lot of it. If you tried to force a steak on a vegan animal like a horse or cow, they would just die. Dogs are scavenging carnivores and cats are obligate carnivores. They need to have healthy, lean, unadulterated meat to be optimally healthy. And that's just wildlife biology, physiology 101. But here's the kicker, Will. Dogs and cats can be nutritionally abused far more so than vegan cows and horses. And what do I mean by that? We can actually start increasing the amount of unnecessary starch and carbohydrates in pet foods to be pretty darn high. In fact, we can go high enough that the amount of corn, wheat, rice, soy, tapioca, quinoa, garbanzo beans, lentils, peas, all of those vegan starches, we can start jacking that content up in pet food because it's far cheaper to feed all of those starchy carbs than to buy rendered meat. So that is exactly what pet food companies have done. In the last 20 years, when, quote, grain-free pet foods came about, grain-free pet foods came about in the early 90s because corn, wheat, and rice, I think some pet owners were recognizing, you know what, some of these staple carbohydrates, 
my pets are sensitive to, and they're creating weight issues. When we carb load anything, the tendency is to gain weight. So the popularity of grain-free foods came about as an alternative marketing solution to grain-based pet foods. The problem is, well, grain-free pet foods oftentimes have more carbs and more starch than the grain-based pet foods. And that's where the problem came in. When we begin nourishing carnivores as vegans and we give 50% grain or, uh, you know, uh, starch-based legumes and peas and vegan-based proteins, and then we go to maybe 55% of these plant-based proteins, and then we go to 60% plant-based proteins, on the front of the label of that dog food, it says grain-free. What people don't understand, unless they do the carb equation, they don't understand that they're basically feeding a very low percentage of meat to their animals day after day after day. And over months and months and months of feeding a high-carbohydrate, grain-free diet, your dogs and cats can become amino acid deficient. Specifically, they can become deficient in the amino acids necessary to not just make taurine in the body, but for normal physiologic processes of heart function, but also other organ functions as well, Will. So really what the grain-free BCM issue is, it's an amino, it's a meat-based amino acid deficiency. And it, when you do the carb equation, I strongly recommend everyone flip over. If you're feeding dry, ultra-processed food, which means kibble or dry food, you need to flip over that bag of food, find the guaranteed analysis. You're going to add up the amount of fiber. You're going to add up the amount of protein. You're going to add up the amount of fat. You're going to look at that ash content and add that in there. You're going to add up those numbers and subtract it from 100. You'll note on the guaranteed analysis that suspiciously carbohydrates are missing. Yep. When you and I flip over any type of human food, you can see right on the nutritional panel, it'll say carbohydrate load because it's a requirement. The pet food industry thinks it would be confusing to pet owners to list carbohydrate content. Well, that's bull. Let me tell you, if they listed carbohydrate content on the side of pet foods, pet food owner would be like, holy cow, this is a bunch of filler. I'm feeding my dog or cat primarily filler. That's why they're not listing carbohydrate content. So my best advice to listeners is find out how much carbs your dog or cat are actually eating. Carbs in the form of starch. Now, what I'm not talking about these amazing prebiotic fibers that are absolutely critical for, for maintaining gut health. I'm talking about starch, which means when you subtract the fiber out of plant-based foods, you are left with starch, which becomes sugar. sugar. And that really is the culprit. So I recommend feeding less than 20% starch to dogs and cats because, well, you probably know this, dogs and cats don't even have a starch requirement. They don't need any right. carbs to be healthy. So you get those carbs down to, I feed my dogs and cats less than 10% carbs, but at least less than 20%. And if you know that you're deriving 80% of your calories that you're nourishing your dog or cat with from lean, whole, unadulterated meats, you'll never have DCF. The problem is 99% of pet parents don't know that. So the DCM issue in a nutshell is an amino acid deficiency that uh, has come about because we are trying to produce cheap pet foods that we sell for some, some of these grain-free pet foods are 120 bucks a bag, but that doesn't mean that they are biologically appropriate, meaning that the carb content is down below 20%. So once you have all the information, we're not going to chase a brand or a flavor. You're not going to ever, in my opinion, be sold out to any one brand. 
The key is you're going to do this independent carbohydrate-based calculation so you know, yes, this is a food that's going to nourish my dog's body in a way that resonates with their physiology, or you know what? I'm not going to feed this food anymore. It's way too high in starch, and I'm going to switch to a food that has more amino acids that my dog's body needs. And, you know, when you look at the foods out there, not only the, the grain-free, but even the grain uh the foods with grain in it. And, and I've sat in front of clients. I've said, hey, bring out your, your bag. And I've done just what you said. Add up all those ingredients and then subtract from 100. And in some cases, we're looking at 60% sugar. Yep. Yep. And people, I tell people to always sit down when they do the carbohydrate calculation because there are people that are like, you don't understand. I spent 100, you know, 120. I had a client last month who said to me, I just bought a bag, it was 126 bucks. And I said, I wish I could tell you that the amount you spend on quote premium kibble in any way translates into that food being appropriate for your dog. It does not. So rather than buy the most expensive food, go for the most nourishing food. But what that means is you have enough tools in your tool belt. You have enough knowledge to not be, you know, to not be kind of wowed by amazing marketing or how much you're spending or the glossy packaging. Or above all, those those darn key those those selling hype marketing words, like this is a this is a freeze dried raw food. Now, freeze dried raw food actually can occur, but that whole term raw mm-hmm. raw means that if you leave the food out for eight hours, it's going to go rancid. Flies will come and lay eggs, and gross things happen. That's the definition of raw food. If you have a shelf stable food then of course it's not raw because it's been processed Mm -hmm. in some way to make it shelf stable. So part of the issue is just wading through the super confusing marketing issues. And that in and of itself takes a lot of time and knowledge because it is confusing. With all of the pet foods that are out there, you know, we've got so many different options. We've got uh, the kibble, and, and I want you to talk about ultra-processed in a second. Um, we've got canned foods. We've got, um, I think it's like more cooked fresh food. I don't know what they call it. The, it's not raw, mm-hmm. but they come in like these tubes and it's called fresh. And then of course, we've got, you know, raw diets and, and we've, they're out there. There's, <clears throat> excuse me, frozen formulated raw diets. There's raw diets that people are doing themselves making themselves. Um, and I'm sure there's pros and cons to all of them. Can you talk about that? You bet. And that probably is my biggest passion is that we, we really need to think about a couple of different things. If you're hearing this for the first time, you know, right now, and you think, Oh my gosh, I've been feeding the same ultra processed food for my animal's whole life. Don't throw your food out. You have a couple different options. And really, it comes down to your budget, Will. And that's something I'm very sensitive to. Some people, you know, can afford to buy any food. They just want the best food. But most people are very focused on the fact that they have to find a food that falls within their budget. So you have a couple of different options. If you are only feeding ultra-processed food, and so let's start there. The definition of ultra-processed food is foods that have been radically altered from their original format. And that involves heat processing. So we adopt the human definition of ultra-processed food for pet foods as well. And we know that after two high heat processes, the food is considered, as well as grinding, freezing, and then extrusion, it's considered processed once. The 
average bag of dry kibble has been high heat processed, those ingredients, four times. So literally the nutrition has been cooked out of those foods. So the top producing dry food manufacturers in the world, they order in big giant bags of ground, you know, ground corn, ground wheat, ground lentil, all of these ground materials that are already cooked, they're already dried, they're already processed, and then they blend those together to create a batter. And then it's heated yet again at very high temperatures through an extruder to create this little brown pellet that we feed to our animals. It's then heated again to dry the extruded food after it comes out of the extruder. And then a palented or a flavor enhancer is sprayed on the top so that your pets will eat it. That's what kibble is. And so if you recognize that those high heat processes are not just destroying nutrients, well, they're creating uh, a compound called advanced glycation end product. They're creating some unwanted byproducts through carbohydrates, the sugar in carbohydrates reacting with protein at these high temperatures. It creates this chemical reaction that permanently changes the structure of the food, creating these unwanted chemical structures, advanced glycation end product. And we kind of term that ages, AGEs. And ages that are the byproduct of high heat processed kibble actually contribute to aging your dog and cat. Ages, uh, in fact, the, uh, some brand new research came out that we highlighted in the book. When we look at the level of these unwanted products that create heart disease, liver disease, kidney disease, autoimmune disease, GI disease, in fact, every major disease process, degenerative disease process, which means not infectious, but everything else, why the body breaks, there has been a study contributing these food-based ages as a factor in why organ degeneration and immune degeneration occurs. So if people are listening and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, why does my pediatrician say don't feed so much junk food to my kids? It be, it's because there are negative consequences when you consume the byproducts of ultra-processed foods long-term. Same thing happens with our dogs and cats. So if you hear this and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't want that, and I know about ages, and I don't want to be feeding those to my dogs or cats every day, then you're going to switch pet food categories completely. You're going to switch from ultra-processed kibble to freeze-dried. And freeze-dried means that people are creating, and the nice thing about freeze-dried is you can get some human-grade options out there. They're taking a raw product and then they're literally freezing it under a vacuum and then sucking the moisture out. And so it's shelf stable, but it has not been heat processed, which is nice. If you can't do freeze dried, you can do dehydrated foods. And dehydrated foods are air dried at a low temperature. You can call the manufacturer and find out what temperature. And so they, you can do a lower heat dehydrated food. Gently cooked foods, Will, is the category that um, that you're referring to. And gently cooked foods, I love. Now, there's a big quality difference between gently cooked foods. So there are some amazing, you know, Ollie and Farmer's Dog and Pet Plate. Some of these human-grade, direct-to-consumer, gently cooked foods are delivered right to your door. They have a very short shelf life because the human-grade foods are cooked, then they're frozen, and then they're shipped to your house. And they're shipped frozen in these tubes, but the product itself has been gently heated once still incredibly nutritious. That's a totally different quality of food than, let's say, fresh pet, which you buy at 
target, but it has a six month shelf life. And your question mm. should be, Hey, how can you keep meat in the fridge for six months? I got the same question. Makes you wonder. So there's a big quality difference in the gently cooked category. But the premise is this, if you're hearing this and you're like, Oh my gosh, I don't want to be feeding my animal ultra processed foods all the time. You can totally switch categories to freeze dried, dehydrated, gently cooked, or you can you can do homemade food and homemade food is how I got started. It was the very first book I ever wrote was a cookbook on how to make nutritionally complete meals at home. You can gently cook it or you can feed it raw. But one of the things that's important, Will, is that if you decide to feed your animals homemade food, first of all, you don't have to do all or nothing. Let's say that you're like, okay, I love this idea of feeding homemade food, but I'm super busy and I can only afford to, you know, time-wise to maybe feed two of my dog's 14 meals homemade. That's awesome. Those are two meals that are going to offer substantially better nutrition than ultra-processed food. So feed as many nutritionally complete homemade meals as you can. So don't feel like it's all or nothing. You can do once a week. You can do maybe fresh food in the morning and processed food at night. There's a whole, there's no set hard and fast way that you have to make a switch and never feed any processed food again. So you can totally hybrid a protocol that works for your lifestyle and your budget. But the, the, the less amount of ultra-processed food you feed your animal, the more nutrients they're going to derive from fresh, whole, real foods. If you decide to do a homemade diet, you do need to follow a recipe so that you know that the food is nutritionally complete. Veterinarians have two big issues with homemade diets. Number one, people do them wrong, and then they create nutritional deficiencies, which harm animals. I've seen that. Most veterinarians listening have seen that. That's why we are opposed to people guessing at recipes. So don't just go, you know, and decide, hey, I'm going to do green peas and, and I'm going to carrots and some ground beef and I'm going to throw some a multivitamin in there. It's not nutritionally complete. So there's online recipes that are nutritionally complete. There are books that offer recipes, but the premise is you need to follow a recipe so that you know you're doing it right. The other category of food that you mentioned that's sweeping the pet food industry, in fact, well, it's the fastest growing segment of the pet food industry, is the raw food component. Yes. And raw foods are obviously foods that have had no heat processing. And the research is quite clear. Those are the foods that offer the best most bioavailable nutrients in whole food form, that is the food that is most nourishing to your dog or cat. So your audience is going to say, that makes sense, but raw meat, you know, what What about E. coli? What about salmonella? So here's the cool thing. Before you, before you say that, I, I want to interject something. My experience, <clears throat> the majority of veterinarians are opposed to feeding raw. And one of the things they'll tell you is it'll make them sick, salmonella. So talk about that. Yes, that's such a good point. Yeah. Veterinarians are some of the, I of course love them, mm-hmm. but they are some of the most uneducated group of professionals pertaining to nutrition. And part of the reason is, well, in vet school, our semester of small animal nutrition is for the most part taught either by a pet food rep or by a board-certified veterinary nutritionist, half of the veterinary schools have a nutritionist teaching the class, but about the other half really don't. You're being taught from an industry representative who's selling a product. So there's some bias there to begin with. But because none of the top Better, uh, none of the top pet food companies that sponsor veterinary schools, every veterinary school is aligned with a pet food brand. None of those brands, market or sell any fresh food diet. So veterinarians 
in when they're in school, they are not getting any training about fresh foods because they're sponsored pet food company, they don't, they're not producing fresh food. So there's a direct conflict of interest. In fact, veterinary schools are teaching fresh food could be bad, but here's where the, here's how you can tell that there's literally no education happening. Veterinarians are smart people. The downside is veterinarians are completely unaware that 50% of the commercially available raw food diets sold are actually sterile, Will. Sterile. Mm. Meaning, They've undergone a process, high-pressure pasteurization, which is a cold thermal process that inactivates bacteria. And when you say that to veterinarians, it just stops them in, it just stops them in their tracks. They're like, what? What? What are you talking about? Veterinarians are unaware that pet foods, every commercial pet food sold in, in the U.S., has to abide by the Food Safety Modernization Act, which dictates that there's a zero tolerance for salmonella found in pet foods. And raw foods have to adhere to that law. So all of the raw foods commercially sold in the U.S. have undergone some type of pathogen control process. And many of them, 50% of raw foods, are using a sterilization technique, which means those raw foods are sterile, which means that they're the safest food on the market. Dry food is certainly not sterile. So just by helping veterinarians become a little bit more educated, uh, that will do a big part in decreasing veterinary fears. Now, veterinarians are fearful, of course, of homemade diets because the meat that you buy at your grocery store is not sterile. And so they want to make sure that the meat you are buying at the grocery store, which may contain a low level of salmonella or E. coli, they want to make sure that you're either cooking those meats to remove that bacteria or that you are practicing safe hygiene for when you are handling those meats in your kitchen. And that's very true. You know, if you're making burgers for your family and you're using a cutting board in your counter, after you make the raw meat, you take it out to your grill, you're going to disinfect your surfaces in your kitchen. And the exact same hygienic techniques will be used when you're preparing raw meat dog food because you're using the same quality of meat. You're going to your grocery store, you're buying meat, you're following the recipe, and you're going to disinfect your countertop. Done. Veterinarians usually, I have not encountered vets that are wildly concerned that dogs or cats are going to get sick with E. coli salmonella. On occasion, will I have, those are veterinarians that I, all I have to do is say, you know that dogs lick their butt, right? <laughs> And you know that when we check just basic healthy rectal swabs on kibble-fed dogs, that they culture salmonella and E. coli, which are natural inhabitants of their GI tract. Dogs evolutionarily can eat dead things. You know, they'll scavenge on dead animals. They'll eat poop. They eat bacterial lace-ridden, you know, carcasses that are teeming with E. coli, and they don't die. So. Now, of course, we don't want to intentionally give salmonella E. coli to your dog by eating a rotten carcass that's been laying out in a field for, for, for a week, but that is not the quality of meat you're buying at your grocery store. So the vast majority of veterinarians aren't concerned about salmonella E. coli for dogs and cats because they're aware that those are natural inhabitants that are already existing in your dog or cat's GI tract. Where veterinarians get concerned is the fact that you're handling raw meat in your kitchen and that your human family members can become sick if they are unaware that you're feeding your dogs or cats raw meat. So once you've identified 
those variables. And if your veterinarian says, listen, I'm really concerned about the, the pathogen load and you're buying food, you can explain to your veterinarian, oh, here's the good news. I don't know if you were aware that the food, at CISMA, the Food Safety Modernization Act dictates that raw pet food has to be free from salmonella. And once veterinarians have been educated on that piece, they tend to fully embrace the concept that you are doing everything you can to feed fresher, less processed food, because the flip side of that means more nutrients, more food-based nutrients that are going to protect your dog or cat from degenerative diseases. So part of this is just bring gently and lovingly bringing your veterinarian up to speed on why fresh foods are not just safe, but if you follow a recipe, they can be done nourishingly, nutritionally, and correctly if you decide to do a homemade diet. So it's just an educational process that you have during a conversation or two or three with your veterinarian who is probably not fresh food literate. Now, Dr. Becker, um, so I, I have a quick question. When it comes to, you know, feeding this raw, this raw diet. Um, and I'm, I'm, a lot of our viewers are actually asking a very, very similar question here is like, what, what is the, I guess for lack of better terms, the end all be all here, because when we're, when we're feeding a raw diet, we're sitting here talking about creating a nutritionally complete meal and diet for our dogs. So when we, if we do decide to switch our dogs to a raw feed, like, are we adding like, are, are there, is there like a, a certain brand that you recommend or, or are we also still following these these recipes for these raw foods that we need to be adding in, you know, certain fruits, vegetables, different grains, things like that. That's what a lot of people are asking in the comments here. I think this is a really good opportunity, Dr. Becker, for you to plug your cookbook. <laughs> well, it, so good question. Within the umbrella of raw food, listeners, there are commercial diets where all of the math has been done for you. So if you are looking for, if you don't want to, if you say, you know, I'm not in the kitchen, I'm not about, I don't cook for myself, I'm not about to make food for my dog or cat, you can buy a nutritionally complete raw food diet. And it will say right on the front of the package, this food meets all life stages requirements, you know, for, for, for actual requirements. There will be a nutritional adequacy statement right on the front of the package that you buy. You're going to look for that. The other option, if you don't want to buy nutritionally complete, commercially available raw foods, those are going to be found in the freezer section of your indie upscale pet boutique. That's my best recommendation. <clears throat> Remember that big box stores, Petco PetSmart, they do carry some frozen raw foods. That is not the best place for the most knowledgeable employees in that uh, small independent pet food retailers your locally owned, family-run, smaller indie boutiques, nutrition are these employees' passions. The owners oftentimes quit their job and open a pet store because they're looking to provide the best information, the better quality frozen raw foods, the better quality human-grade, gently cooked foods. Their passion is food. So they're going to be able to answer all your questions, partner with you. When you come back and say, I have questions about this, you're going to be able to forge a relationship with small independent retailers. And that's where I'm going to recommend. If you've got questions, find your local mom and pop pet store and go there and they will partner with you to get your questions answered when it comes to buying nutritionally complete raw food. When we're talking about making homemade diets, certainly, you know, uh, I do have, as we'll mentioned, I do have 
a recipe book that has both cooked formulas and raw food formulas that you can certainly follow. Uh, you can also, foreverdog.com, the website for the book, has a bunch of free nutritionally complete recipes. You guys can go on there, log on, and just read through them. But you'll see the difference between when you're going to cook or make homemade raw food for your dog. If you're going to be in your kitchen making pet food, you will follow a recipe that looks pretty basic on the front side. It'll list the ingredients, but then they're going to give you this nutritional profile that shows you all the amino acids, all the vitamins, all the minerals, and all the fatty acids for that recipe. So that if your vet or if you say, hey, I just want to make sure that this recipe, that I have enough amino acids that my dog is not going to get DCM from amino acid deficiency, I want to know that those, all the homemade recipes that I'm recommending are going to come with this nutritional profile that you can physically look and see. And you'll say, okay, here's what this recipe, here's the amount of nutrients that this recipe contains. Here's ASCO minimums, and I can see that I'm meeting my dog's requirements. And once you have those pieces in place, you can take a deep breath because you know that you're following a recipe that is not just meeting minimum nutritional requirements. We're not just sustaining life with fresh, living, whole foods. We are giving our animals the raw materials to actually have a functional healing response if they're sick. And if they're young and not sick, we are super fortifying their bodies to give them the raw materials to not degenerate over time. And that really is what nourishing animals well is all about. It's making the decision to spend money on really good ingredients before our animals get sick. So we are not spending money on drugs to treat the symptoms after they've already degenerated. It's just a different way of spending money on the front end, buying healthy foods versus buying drugs years down the road. So then would it be safe to argue that if more and more pet owners were feeding their animals these nutritionally complete meals, that the 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 literature that we have on, you know, what is the average lifespan of all these animals, would it be, in your opinion, a much different number? What I can I can't answer that because we've not done yet lifetime studies, meaning from birth till death, animals are on fresh food their whole life. No one's done that. We are working to do that now, okay. which means you have a cohort of animals from the time that they're born. They're weaned from mama's milk onto fresh, raw, nutritionally complete food, and then they are fed that their entire lives until they die. We don't have a lifetime study on fresh food, but what I will tell you is at one of the variables with every single owner of these exceptionally long-lived dogs that we interviewed for the Forever Dog book, one common variable, whether it was Maggie, the 30-year-old Kelpie in Australia, whether it was Bushki, the 26-year-old dog in Budapest, Ooh. Tigger, the 22-year-old Pitbull from Texas, all of these owners, when we interviewed them, they all incorporated fresh foods into their dog's meals. So all I can relate to you is that from my clinical experience, when I started my animal hospital, you know, in 1989, I encouraged all of my clients to incorporate at least some fresh foods, whether you swap out milk bones for, for blueberries, 
whether you scoop out 10% of your dog's kibble and replace it with 10% fresher foods, whether you do uh, kibble in the morning and raw food at night, or whether you're like, screw that, I can afford to do all fresh food. I'm never feeding my dog junk food again. All of those variables are taking a step towards increasing health and lifespan. And so by you intentionally reducing the variables that create disease and feeding more foods that intentionally promote health and longevity, we know that we're swinging the pendulum in the right direction. To the extent of knowing exactly how many months and years we're adding to our dog's life, I can't tell you that because that study hasn't been done. But I will tell you from my clinical experience and from the owners of the oldest dogs in the world, they all ate fresh food. Um, I, I, I don't know if you can talk about this, but I've had clients that have put their dogs on raw food. They, in my opinion, made the mistake of going cold turkey from kibble to raw food. Their dogs had incredible diarrhea. They took their dog to the veterinarian. The veterinarian said, your dog got sick because of the raw food salmonella poisoning. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and I that's, not that happen, so. that's not what it was. That's not what it is. Exactly. They, yeah. Dogs don't well, so get that of, salmonella. Isn't it true that their uh, digestive tract is a third as long as ours and it goes through a lot faster and therefore it's not as problematic? So it's very, very true that dogs and cats both have very short GI tracts compared to humans. Very short. Uh, now, dogs and cats can get food poisoning. Let's be clear. It's, people say dogs and cats can't get food poisoning. Oh, yeah, they absolutely can. However, they're much more because of their physiology, they have strong stomach acid, sort of GI tract. They're, you know, kitties are still evolutionarily adapted to hunt mice. And cats, if you give them the opportunity, will still hunt mice. And they don't die when they eat the mouse. They, they're, they're eating their evolutionary food source. So nothing has changed in terms of a dog or cat's physiology. Just because kibble, just because ultra-processed pet food has been around 100 years, doesn't mean that a dog or cat's physiology has changed in the last hundred years. They are still absolutely very well adapted to eat their evolutionary food source, which are your rabbits for dogs and mice for cats. They're a-okay doing that. But listeners, anytime you switch your dog or cat's food, you don't ever do it cold turkey. Anytime you, even if you go from kibble, ultra processed extruded food to, to freeze dried food, I see blow at diarrhea with that. I see blow at diarrhea going from dehydrated food back to kibble. So it's not about switching to a different food category. It's about your dog or cat's microbiome being adapted enough to handle a food change. You and I, humans, if humans have healthy microbiomes, if our gut bacteria is healthy, we should be able to eat eggs for breakfast one day, pancakes the next, and bacon the next, and not have low at diarrhea. If your dog and cat's GI tracts are balanced and healthy and resilient i switch my dog's protein every day my dog my and cats my dogs and cats never eat the same food trice they'll eat chicken quail beef rabbit um pheasant goat i'm rotating through a different protein every day and they never have diarrhea because i've made them i made them intentionally have got the feel i wanted my dogs and cats gi tracts to be so resilient that their microbiome was as strong as as mine. I want to be able to eat something different and not have GI consequences. But I created that in my animals. If you haven't done that, if you've been feeding kibble for three years and your dog has never had anything else, don't switch their food tomorrow. You will do 5%. Maybe you'll do a topper. Maybe you'll do a bite of apple. Maybe you'll do half of a mini carrot. You know, one mini carrot sliced up yields about 10 micro treats, training treats. Start with that. So as your dog or cat's GI tract becomes healthy as their microbiome diversifies, as they gain GI resiliency, 
Then you can add in 5% new food, take out 5% old food. Then you do 10%. Then you go 80, 20, 70, 30, 60, 40. Then you do 50% old food, 50% new food. You don't just up and switch your food. You will have diarrhea, but the diarrhea isn't because you toxified your pet. It's because you switched their food too fast. And for, for the veterinarians that say, oh my gosh, you poisoned your pet, sadly, veterinarians are amazing, but we are not psychic. So any veterinarian that looks at an animal and says, your pet has salmonella, it's like, oh, really psychic veterinarian, you are amazing that you would be able to see that from across the room. You have a skill that no one else has. When I, when I have asked for fecal culture results on, you know, I do a lot of, of people, I see a lot of clients that, of course, their veterinarians have said, don't do raw. When I have looked at fecal culture results, I, in my 25 years of recommending raw food, I have never seen an E. coli salmonella case. That's not to say it can't happen, but I have never seen an animal on raw food have a raging case of salmonella or E. coli diarrhea. I've absolutely seen them have diarrhea, but not caused from those pathogens. So the premise is, if you're going to switch your animal's food to anything new, you're going to do it very slowly because who, who wants to feel gross and crappy? We don't want to give our animals diarrhea. Just go slow and you're going to use poop as your guide. If your animal's poop gets a little soft, you're going to back off on the transition. So a little bit of common sense goes a long way when it comes to diversifying your dog's diet. Wow. There's so much information and unfortunately so little time. We are at uh, one minute after 10. We've run over. Um, Do us a favor. Can you go ahead and give out your websites and ways that uh, our viewers can get more information about you, about your book, The Forever Dog, about your, um, I know you're involved with um, different supplements and stuff. So could you give that information out for our viewers? Sure. It's really easy. My website is drkarenbecker.com and the Forever Dog website is even easier, foreverdog.com. And you can go there and read, learn. You'll learn more about what I do and who I am and what I believe on my website. And Forever Dog has a ton of resources about the benefits of fresh feeding, free recipes, um, what the research shows about longevity in fresh foods. You can find all that information on foreverdog.com. Perfect. Hey, I appreciate you being able to make the time. Like I said, I know you're incredibly busy. Everybody's wanting you. Um, so we are so fortunate to have you on today. Absolutely. Hopefully we can have you on again. I'd love to just do a show specifically on microbiome. Um, yeah. That's become a yeah. really big thing. But again, thank you so much, Dr. Becker. We yes. really appreciate you being yes, here thank today. You. Thank you. It's been a joy. I can't wait to come back. All yes. right. Thanks. Have a great day. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was it. Dr. Karen Becker, the show that we promised.